0: Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Imagine, if you will, rolling hills of farmland sheltered by dense hedges of hawthorn, holly, and elder with bird song, cows lazily grazing, swishing tails among the trees, not a tractor in sight. A pastoral idyll? Conjured from the pages of Hardy? No, not at all. The very likely picture on seven Devon farms in 2035, if today's guests have anything to do with it. Today, we are talking about silvopasture, one of the many changing faces of farming. And joining me in the podcast virtual studio are Andy Gray, a catering butcher, direct deliverer of meat boxes, a game and venison producer, a farmer, quarry owner, and dog food producer. He also has an interest in falconry, fishing, deer stalking, spearfishing, beekeeping and ferreting. And, not to mention, founder of a new website, Farm Wilder, where you can benefit from his meat direct on the internet to be launching soon. Welcome, Andy, and thanks for joining us.
1: Hello, Amanda. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: My second guest, Dr. Robert Dunn, is from the Rothamsted Research Institute at Northwick in Devon. His interests are in all things environmental and his working life focuses on reducing the environmental impact of agriculture. He's been fortunate to work on a large variety of projects including biodiversity restoration, soil chemistry, greenhouse gas monitoring, water quality issues and increasing the nutrient content of crops both here and in Africa, as well as planting trees in the new Devon Silver Pasture Trial and managing Rothamsted Silver Pasture Site. Robert, hello and welcome.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Can I perhaps start by asking you both what silvopasture is? Because I guess quite a lot of listeners probably won't know.
2: So my understanding of what silvopasture is, is predominantly a grass-based system that also has trees in. And so you allow eventually when the trees are well-established and robust enough to be browsed by the animals that are in the field. And also the they can use it as shelter from the sun or the, or the wind or the rain. Um, but it differs from conventional agriculture which is purely just pasture based feeding of the livestock here you have both options for the animals
0: so Andy the cows on your farm and the other and the I'm assuming you're also raising venison so presumably you've got deer and things as well we have, we have yeah so they're no longer to be sort of tramping across big open fields with just grass they're going to be in a much more mixed and perhaps a little bit my slightly fanciful introduction of you know swishing amongst the trees it's going to be a much more mixed picture on on your fields in the future, isn't it?
1: It, it certainly will, and uh, and and sort of adding to what Rob said. I mean, there's also the advantage that you've got um, cash crops amongst the trees. So my family have been cider makers for 300 years, and we've had uh, apples produced uh, in orchards, and effectively, you know, standard orchards are a form of silvopasture. pasture. So you know, it's 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 old but new, um, and it's just a sort of continuation of that sort of thing which has been dropped off on away from our landscape for quite a long time but but this is just an opportunity to put put it back again
0: so would you have been having animals grazing in amongst your apple trees anyway i'm kind of got the vision of that's possibly not terribly good for the trees because presumably deer are getting at the bark and other animals are eating the small apples so would would, would you have had traditionally amongst those cider orchards would you've had animals in there
1: Absolutely. We'd have put calves or, or, or sheep in there. And once the once the secondary thickening on the barks happened, then but the, the tree is robust enough to put up with sheep. And most sheep don't um, strip the bark. You occasionally get it's a learned activity, so you occasionally get some that will. But uh, no, so as a child, I was used to turning lambs out into orchards and and that was warmer for them and more comfortable for them. So that you'd put your day old lambs out there and, and that would get them started before going on out into colder, more windswept fields.
0: So Andy, why then did we stop turning those day-old out la- old lambs out into those apple orchards? Why do we move away from that mixed environmental space?
1: The, the orchard production became much more intensified and we started using bush trees instead of uh, standard trees. So we'd, we'd use trees with the branches right down to the ground and, and on much tighter plantings. And it became much more of a specialist production. So... In Devon, there's, an, there's still a lot of standard orchards about and a great movement trying to protect them, but on the whole, uh, Apple production's gone much more intensive and, and with much more chemical intervention and, and as, as it's sort of lost that traditional feel. Um, but there's still some left and we st- it's, it's very much within our cultural and living memory.
0: So um, this is not the usual sort of agricultural trial, is it? And I mean, obviously, um, you know, those people who are familiar with Rossman will know that the Institute's been looking at soil quality and trying to to increase the quality of agriculture and lessen the environmental impact for some time. But what is special and different about this and why are you doing it anyway?
2: So I think the thing that's different about this research project that we're working on is that normally we would do the research and then take the results to the farmers. Uh, or to the government to then go up to the farmers. Whereas in this instance, it was very much a farmer-led research interest. So it was people that were wanting to be farming in a way which was slightly different to the conventional uh, mode of farming at the moment. And, and we've piggybacked on the back of it. So that's it's, it's a sort of slight different tack to how we normally do our research.
1: Can I jump in on that as well as the non-scientist and the farmer? I mean, it's, it's come about partly for, for a great organization called Innovative Farmers. And, and whenever you engender change in a business or anything like that, you need to t- talk to the shop floor. And basically, uh, policy has been dumped on farmers from a great height for for. You know, 50, 60 years, and and there's this organisation called Innovative Farmers, whose purpose it is to come to farmers and say, "Have you got any good ideas?" That you, you know, we have these. The world is changing. We have different problems that we need to solve, uh, and farmers have the opportunity, but via Innovative Farmers, to be put in touch with great scientists like the people at Rothamsted and the Organic Research Centre. And it's and and the world now has to collaborate more. We've got, we we realise that the world's changed and we've got common problems, and and. Organisations like innovative Farmers have then put put us in touch with the Woodland Trust who pay for all the um, the trees and all the uh, gardening and that sort of thing for this particular trial. So it gives us the opportunity to ask questions that policy makers don't necessarily think of because they're not the ones on the ground with their hands in the mud actually identifying the opportunities for positive change and the uh, uh, problems that we're trying to unblock. So really, that sort of opportunity that they've generated is is a a tremendous one there's lots and lots of other trials going on by innovative farmers it just happens that this one is the one we're involved in and it's 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 just fabulous really.
0: So what got you into it Andy I mean why did you I mean apart from positive wanting to recreate the the scenes of your childhood what what why were you tempted to take part in the trial and and plant lots of trees on your farm because that's what you've done isn't it you've planted um, how many trees have you planted?
1: Oh about 6,000
0: Okay, so about fair 20, few.
1: <laughs> about, 20, about twenty-six acres at, at, at about two hundred stems to the acre, I think. So uh, it's a, it's a reasonable number. Why? Um, part I've always been interested uh, when you look at the benefits. I, I mean, I sat down once and listed about twenty-six benefits, and it, it, pretty well every single one of those was a good enough reason to do it. About adding in the other twenty-five, so you can see that there was an awful lot of good stuff there. Two, I'm, ex- I'm enormously curious, so, and, and I'm a great believer that if you want to find something out, you need to do it. You can't just carry on being curious, so jump in. And three, I like going to the Rothamstead Loth- just down the road from us have winter talks, so I go to quite a lot of those uh, and listen to the scientists there because I find find a lot of it truly inspirational. And I've met people there, who, and I was just lucky enough to be the right person in the right place and, and had the chance to be part of this trial, for which I'm very grateful
0: so tell us a little bit about what your farm looks like now. I mean, I'm assuming this tree planting has happened happened during the winter and early spring because that's the best time to plant trees. so so you've got you've got all six thousand trees in there now. Um, well, just give us a picture of what it's looking like.
1: So this farm has been in in continuous pretty bleak arable for about fifty years, and and its uh, soil has been fairly well done over in that time. So, so it's it's basically a, a, an ex-arable farm which is now heading off into pasture, and it's um, it's red land. So it's it's central Devon has a belt of red soil which is volcanic of origin, and. So amongst the stubbles, we planted trees at three metre spacings between the trees, and and we planted them fourteen metres apart, which gives you a twelve metre cultivation strip. If you want to go back into cultivation, most agricultural machinery is on six metre, or you know twelve, or multiples of six, so we planted them. So we can get access it with tractors and and cut the grass, or or go back into arable in the future if we want to. Uh, so we've got lines of trees across the landscape, and it's a real mixture of indigenous species. And in amongst them all, I put some chestnut and some walnut, which aren't necessarily viewed as indigenous, but they're cash crops for me to to take uh, money monetary value from. And then on my other piece of ground where we make cider, I put in apple trees as well, but they're mixed. Very much with uh, with the oak and the birch and the other species.
0: Okay, and so you've created quite a. I mean, it's quite a. It's regimented, if I can say that. It's quite regimented, yeah. Lines of trees, so we haven't got little kind of clumps of cops, but you know, so it's workable. And what are you what are you hoping will happen in the next five years to your lines of trees?
1: Uh, Well we we put we've put the ground between the trees into a into a countryside stewardship. So we've actually planted pollen mixes. So we're hope so so we. But one of the one of the costs of producing trees in a pasture is the fact that you can't graze it. So probably the biggest cost is the opportunity cost of not having livestock or anything else in there. Uh, so we've, we've we've got we're taking a, 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 an income from from growing stuff for wildlife and being paid by the government to do that. So it should be. Absolutely alive with birds and bees and butterflies and things like that. In the meantime, um, uh, and it's, uh, but but without being able to put livestock in there, it's just going to be empty for five years really. And we'll we'll take a few. Uh, we'll cut it. We'll have to cut it to encourage their pollen mixes. But um, other than that, there won't be too much activity until it's ready to, to put livestock in. And, and potentially we might put in, you put, You could put geese in and the geese won't strip the bark. You could put in other, other things which won't damage the trees. But until the trees are robust enough, we don't want to damage them.
0: So, Rob, that's quite a big ask, isn't it? You go to a farmer and you say, stop grazing your cows on this field. We want to put in a bunch of trees. You won't get any return for a number of years unless, you know, you've, you've put in something like a cash crop, like apples or walnuts. But even that will take a while because they don't, you know, they don't get to the point where you can harvest those, those crops immediately. So why would anyone, you know, why would other farmers, why are the other six farmers taking part? Because that's quite a big ask of a farmer, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, they can get a crop from it. Obviously, they can go in and cut the grass, either as a silage crop or a hay crop. So it's not a case that there's no income from those fields for five years. But as Andy says, you don't want to damage the trees, which you've worked hard in planting by putting the animals in there too early. But I think the, the benefits come not just in the short term, but in the long term. So we need to think about things in a much more progressive way, I would say, and not just have short term visions about what... Um, farming activities should be happening we should be thinking about the future of what's happening to the soils what's happening to the the business within the farm itself
1: i'd absolutely agree with that it's it's i mean this farm uh we we have recarboned it the soil used to run away now because we've improved the carbon content of the soils it's much more stable so we've got a we've we've sort of undone some of the damage of continuous arable and and heavy use of nitrogen fertilizers and things like that and and this is an investment in 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 the in the asset value of your soil so you have to look at much more than just the crop of the year it's it's long-term thinking which farmers historically were great long-term thinkers we've just gone a bit shorter term thinking over the last few years because of you know subsidies and and the pressure to make money in a in a, in a diminishing return market so uh, it's it's long-term thinking is a lot of it
0: Andy, you talked sense. about the stewardship scheme, which is a which is a funding stream. Um, how how will the changes in funding affect this trial? I mean, because will you be eligible for Elms, which I think cuts through the stewardship scheme, doesn't it? Are you going to be able to access other forms of government funding, or will you not need that because the farm will be, that land will become more self sufficient?
1: It's going to be an interesting one because I'm sure we will get payments for it, but we don't know what the payments are. And, you know, but this is, it's classic government incompetence, that they promise you lots of stuff down the line. So everybody thinks, OK, we better be really bad until we, because we basically get paid to improve things, not for what we've done in the past. So the last thing you want to do at the moment is what we've just done, which is to plant lots of trees before it happens, because historically they've always given money to the people who have already trashed the landscape rather than the people who've looked after it in the first place. And they continue. Continue to make the same stupid mistakes as far as I can tell unless they prove us wrong on this occasion. But the whole world would like to plant trees, but they're all going, well, we're not going to plant trees because we'll be paid to plant trees. So why would we plant trees before we get paid? Uh, so so, the, the, the one thing they're trying to achieve, they absolutely undermine. And then they got tangled up in Brexit and COVID and, and, and the whole thing got kicked further and further down the road. And all we've done is wasted two or three years when we could have actually acted before. But people like us have just got so bloody fed up with it. We've just got on and done it anyway and possibly um, the Elm system will pay pay us for the good that we're doing as well as the good that we could do in the future as well. It's very difficult, to, it's, it's difficult to call but it's an unending gripe amongst land managers that but, but that's how public good is rewarded.
0: Mm. And I suppose there's a wider good, isn't there? There's the, the, the wider economic benefits that, that this sort of approach that silver pasture delivers. I mean, I think there's been some some studies in the States, haven't there, that actually show there's some economic benefit to, to, to managing the land in this way.
2: Yeah, I think really there's three benefits that are going to come from the trees. That's the improvement on the soil in terms of carbon contents, improvements for biodiversity, but also improvements for the livestock. And I think the... Um, The main driver is going to be the the improved access to shelter and shade, which will presumably um, benefit the farmer in terms of higher output from the animals that they're farming. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're farming in a much more natural way and the animals are going to be healthier. They might even get better uh, access to nutrients in the browse that they've got, rather than just having the grass to graze from. And that will hopefully then manifest itself in some um, extra beneficial outcomes from the economic side of things.
0: When you say carbon content, what do you mean? Well, when
2: the trees are growing, they're obviously going to be rooting at different depths compared to the grasses that are growing in the field or have traditionally been growing in the field. And obviously, some of that carbon is going to remain in the soil. It won't get respired away very quickly. So there have been some um, decadal-long agroforestry studies in the UK, and uh, one of those was cited at Northwick, Um, but the main person who's done the research is a a chap from Northern Ireland called Jim McAdam, and uh, a lot of his research has been published to look at the carbon contents, and it's not necessarily the the total amount of carbon which changes, but the actual physical form of carbon. So what he found in his his agroforestry site was that uh, the very small aggregates of of carbon, the less than 53 micrometre diameter, increased where you've got the trees growing compared to where it's just the the grass so there wasn't really a change in the total amount of carbon but there was this shift in the size fraction um and the, and the important thing about that is that it's it's um it's more difficult for microbes to utilize that carbon source and respire it away and get it back into the atmosphere so it's locked away for longer and taken out of the atmosphere effectively
0: So we're sequestering the carbon. It's caught, it's captured in the soil. And obviously, I guess the added benefit is that trees themselves absorb carbon. So you've got that that double benefit because you've got the trees as well as the soil. So you're improving both the quality of the land and the the trees as
2: as, as carbon sinks. Yeah, it's really important that we benefit from the soil carbon. When I think about the, um, the, the, the issue about sequestration of carbon from the atmosphere, obviously it took millions of years for the coal beds to form as coal beds from the trees that were decomposing there. And we've effectively turned them out into the atmosphere in 150 years. Mm. Um, Growing trees is only, we're going to be taking carbon out of the atmosphere, that individual tree, for maybe a few decades, maybe a century. Um, So if you think about it in the long term over say, a 1,000 years, most of the carbon that will go into the wood of the tree will end up back in the atmosphere. But some of the carbon that goes into the soil, these really small fractions, will stay there for long term.
0: So it has a very long-term benefit. It also, I guess, has a shorter-term benefit, doesn't it, at helping to mitigate some of the risks that, that we've been talking about generally in relation to the climate. And you were talking about, Andy, in terms of the changing nature of the soil. So so I guess erosion, water runoff, and actually changing the quality of the soil and, um, and putting in trees is going to help the actual overall quality of the land, I'm assuming
1: absolutely and and you know water quality water the, the, the runoff into rivers is is absolutely key as well i mean there is no downside to putting carbon into back into soils carbon back into soil is the is the building block of biodiversity it improves the structure of the soil which improves its porosity which allows it to uh, uh, rain to sink in but it also allows it to hold onto it and then release it back to the tree the, the plants that you're trying to grow and it uh, it stops the surface runoff and, and and therefore it whips away fewer of the chemicals on the surface and reduces the soil going into rivers as well as the chemicals going into rivers. So, so on water alone, it's brilliant. And, and also the porosity of the soil with trees is so much greater than pure pasture, especially intensive pasture. So it's, it's just, just on water grounds alone, it's fantastic. But on top of, but if you add in all the other things, I mean, as Rob says about the the livestock, the, Effectively, it gives livestock a chance to self-regulate. It gives them a choice. They can go into the sunshine. They can go under the trees. If they're going to get bitten by insects under the trees, they can go into trees in more wind, and so on and so on. There's a wonderful woman called Lindsay Wistons who's doing all this research for the Organic Research Centre, and, uh, and 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 she she tells you things which uh, when she tells you, you think, oh, that's obvious, but uh, you know it's only obvious because she's told you, and, <laughs> and, and 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 once she tells you, you think, Christ, this is just so, such such a good idea. So it's 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 exciting stuff.
0: This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm Evershed Sutherland. It is exciting stuff, and it's really, really important in that wider concept of climate change, isn't it? Because just recently the 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 committee on climate change came out with a report i mean every year they produce their carbon budget but more terrifying was the report they produced recently about climate risk and how we're failing to actually respond to some of those climate risks and and i can see that the work that you're both engaged in is really going to help to mitigate some of that so offset the incredibly dry summers we're having the Mm. the semi-droughts offset the very very wet winters we're getting and the in you know the, the extremes of weather so there's a a longer term, wider climate benefit attached to this, isn't there,
2: Rob? Yeah, yeah. So I think they said that the, the drought year of 2018 will be the normal summer in, say, 50 years' time. Um, and obviously, in Devon, it wasn't as hot as other parts of the country. So in the southeast, it was hotter. But even here, there was no grass growth for a month. So farmers then had a choice of what do they do with their animals. And the choice that they had was either you feed them their winter rations, which they'd just harvested, which obviously a, a cost, which they weren't expecting, or you sell the herd and reduce the amount of, um, of animals that need feeding, and if you know the predictions do come true, and, and there's no reason to doubt that, that they won't, then animals are going to be suffering from heat stress. Um, and if they can't get out of the sun, which is the norm at the moment, then they're really going to be suffering. So having trees for them to shelter under is going to have quite a profound effect, I would think, on on the on the the, the welfare of the animals. And
1: then, of course, in the winter, you've got the, them being protected from the from the uh, wind velocity when they're wet. And they're, again, the Organic Research Centre have done research on on how much food they have, extra food they have to eat just to stay warm. And it's it is dramatic. So, so potentially we're producing a much more productive system. So we might not be measuring it. You know, there's the danger of simplifying what you measure. And, and agriculturally, we've often measured yields. Well, it's much more important to. To measure the productivity of the whole system, rather than the yield of grass that you're getting on that landscape. So, having the, uh, the you know slowing down the wind is is helps in the winter because it keeps your cattle warm. It helps in the summer because it doesn't strip the moisture out of the, out of the out of the land. So it produces produces resilience in so many different ways by just having these strips of trees or clumps or however your planting happens to be.
0: So, do you think this is going to give you some extra? Tools in your toolbox, Andy, when I think about, you know, you you, you as a game producer producing a lot of, of produce for for restaurants, presumably had a pretty tricky time during the pandemic Certainly at the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut. We've now got the potential threat of much cheaper meat coming from initially from Australia, but no doubt from other parts of the world when other free trade agreements have you know have gone through and there's zero tariffs is are you going to get some extra resilience for your farm not just in terms of having a new crop for you know for, for chestnuts and walnuts and a bigger apple crop i mean are you going to be able to shore up some other parts of your business
1: uh yes in many ways so so but uh, agriculturally it potentially will extend the growing season because you, it'll keep the ground drier and keep the stock warmer going on into the winter uh, so, it's, so so the profitability of a livestock production is greater. But for me, much more importantly, is we're direct marketeers. So we have meat boxes. We're launching a new sort of regenerative one, which is... Uh, uh, Basically, awarding nature-rich farms, uh, ours included, hopefully. Uh, and if you're selling something, you you need a story, and this is a really good story, and it's a visual story. It's much more visual than any other concept of uh, you know previous years for marketing marketing food, and people understand it remarkably easily. So, as a, as a as a means of of realizing di- direct marketing and driving customers to my website, it's it's potentially a a, a very good thing from from that perspective as well and uh yeah
0: so what's special about the way that you're rearing your stock and, and why would people want to buy your you know we've all been told to eat less meat but why would people want to buy the meat in the game that you're producing
1: well, as Rob said earlier, there's cycling of nutrients from deeper in the soil, so you've got a, you're, you're producing a more nutrient-dense piece of meat anyway. They're eating a much more varied diet, because part of the purpose of planting these trees, which we haven't touched on, is, is every other tree is actually a shrub, and its purpose is to be eaten. So we're, we're putting more t- so it's, and we'll move the, move the livestock, rather like cell grazing across the, the landscape, so that they, they bite probably only eat the leaves off each shrub twice a year so it gives the shrub the, t- the, the chance to recover in the same way as the grass has a chance to recover and also that uh, shrub uh, uh, it can be a sacrificial feed if you do run out of grass you can always cut branches off trees and feed, feed it as a hay uh, and it sort of tops you up in lean and hard times I do that with holly now Her foresters hate holly so I go into woodlands for my with, with my deer in the wintertime cut down holly trees drag them down the road behind my quad and, and the deer munch on those for a day or two and it's 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 more than it's more than just grass in life you can just it's, it's, it's i didn't kind of know more, that deer ate
0: holly i didn't know yeah, they so do. what kind of shrub, shrub shrubs are you putting in amongst your trees ah
1: good question willow is a particular favorite and, and has been mm. proven to, to potentially reduce um to the methane production uh and we've got um Yeah, so we've got got six
2: different shrubs. (laughs) Yeah, so willow, goat willow is what we planted. Hazel, witch elm, elder, holly and spindle.
0: They sound, just their names, they sound like something from, you know, from, from farms... 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, witch hazel conjures up all sorts of images in my mm. in my mind, and it's probably not found that much now across no. farms. So it's just that lovely idea that we're, we're going back and reintroducing species that are native to the UK and creating such variety in our landscape.
2: Yeah, I think traditionally farmers would have allowed their cattle to, to browse, uh, and it's only really recently that they've, you know, they've taken trees out of fields made them bigger for machinery to get around. Um, and when I think of places like the Somerset Levels, you obviously have this very flat landscape, but the trees they do see there are pollarded willows, and like Andy says, they in the lean times when they had droughts in the summer, they would have pollarded the willows and took those branches and fed those to the cattle to get them through that lean period. Um, so traditionally, farmers have used actively used managed trees for their farm business, mm-hmm. and it's only recently that we you know we've abandoned that um, idea.
0: Yeah, it's a sort of post-war sort of 70s, you know, came in with a lot of the common agricultural policy, didn't yeah, it? The, the ripping up of the hedges. I yeah. remember that as a child, ripping up of the hedges and having the huge, huge um, fields of, of of wheat with vast combines yeah. on. So we're just losing that integrity of the landscape and that, yeah. that mixed, mixed yeah. pasture. I, think, I guess.
2: And when we see the animals turned out, obviously they're overwintered here at, at Norfolk because we have very clay-rich soils so it would get poached very easily in the winter. So they're they're always housed in the winter. But when they get turned out in the spring, the first thing they do is just run around like mad things. But the second thing they do is go up to the hedge. They don't bother grazing, they actually go to the hedge and browse. Mm. So, the, you know, they know what they want to eat much better than anybody else does. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes using barbed wire fences denies them that, that access to what they would actually like to have access to, um, which is you know, maybe detrimental to the animal. We don't know that, but you know, it's certainly a possibility.
0: And also a fabulous habitat for pollinators, for, for birds. I mean, you know, you know, Andy, you're a beekeeper, but you know, obviously bees are only part of the story. Well, honeybees are only part of the story, aren't they? All are other pollinators who need those, those, those places to nestle and, and those places to breed.
1: Absolutely, and in my lifetime, we've watched biodiversity crash around us. And and you know, one of my pleasures in life is is seeing wildlife. And and it's a, an extra non-taxable benefit is having a having a nice wildlife-rich landscape if we do do this. But also, I was mean, just thinking back to what 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 value it has. When I started, when we started planting trees, I went to um, various organisations within the parish, literally within five miles, and said, "Anybody want to volunteer?" We had sixty volunteers plant all my trees. I. Didn't didn't actually plant any trees at all i just pointed at the field and and just shouted sh- 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 get, get on with it basically and uh but that demonstrates the public concern that about these issues uh and as a consequence it's a it's a sort of market tester for me from the point of view of meat boxes in the future if people are willing to go and plant trees they're equally as willing to pay a little bit extra to to produce more wildlife and capture carbon and improve the environment generally so it, as a farmer farmers don't generally engage with the public but that was a fascinating bit of public engagement to find out exactly what they did think but we own the landscape we own 70 percent of the surface of the country that the sun sun's rays hit and the sun is basically the energy which can drive carbon capture so most people don't have the opportunity to to really change things in in other than changing their behavior they can't change much but farmers do have the ability to change things but but they do need to be led and given some you know helpful policy and they need the science which you know is full sort of full circle back to the joys of dealing with people like Rothamsted you can't you can't say to farmers you must do this unless you can actually prove to them but it's a damn good idea Uh, and that's proving to them financially is a good idea but scientifically it's a good idea as soon as somebody sees a gap in the science they they all rush through it like sheep escaping through a gate.
0: So the science is really important and what are you hoping as Rothamsted to achieve over this It's a 15-year trial, isn't it? So it's quite a long-term trial. Um, What are you hoping will come out at the end? And are there any downsides to silvopasture that we haven't thought about or that you perhaps you haven't expected that you might see?
2: So, yeah, so we're basically looking at those three strands, the soil chemistry, in in particular the carbon, uh, the biodiversity aspects and the animal behavioural, and how they interact with the trees, uh, and compare that to a control field, which is just the same soil type but only has pasture doesn't have any trees in there for the animals to browse from and yeah we're really looking to see in the short term and the long term how quickly do changes happen because it's just something that we don't really know about at the moment we're assuming that uh, having access to extra um, floral resources will bring in pollinators Um, but we don't know how quickly they're going to get there we we assume that the animals are going to perform better if they can um, express their natural behavior and rubbing against the trees as well as browsing them and finding shade. But we don't really know how much of an effect it's going to have on them in terms of their performance and how quickly they can be sold and up to market and making money for the farmer. Um, and we, all, like I said, with, with the carbon, we don't really know how much carbon is going to go into the soil. Um, some of the assumptions that we have with the carbon is that it might not really make very much difference on those farms that have pasture. And they've had pasture down for decades because they're going to be fairly rich carbon- Um, stores anyway. So adding a few trees to the field might not actually make much difference, but we we need to be measuring that just to see how much influence the trees do have. Um, And the downside of it is something that uh, Luke Dale Harris, who who's who's driven a lot of this silver pasture work, he was very um, concerned about one aspect of the increased shelter, which was blowflies. So if you have sheep going on there, you might get more strike from these blowflies on the sheep because it's more sheltered so the, the wind's basically killing the, oh, the sorry the trees are killing the wind speed and it's something that farmers might be um, concerned about you know why would I increase the number of trees or increase the shelter that animals can have if it's going to result in extra uh, costs in terms of medication for the sheep so that's one of the things that we will be measuring uh, within the, the biodiversity aspects.
0: I can see how um You could measure the the carbon content of the soil. How are you going to measure the pollinators? I mean, are you going to look at a set bit of hedge and count how many insects you can see? I mean, how do you measure pollinators in a space like that?
2: So the national surveys, which are run by Butterfly Conservation or the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, which are the main groups of pollinators that we'll be looking at, they they already have um, frameworks which have developed methodology uh, and are deployed across the country. And basically it's a transect walk. It's a timed transect walk. And we're going to have to use a modified version of that because most of the transects are about two to four kilometres. Well, obviously the fields that we've got the trees planted in aren't that big. Um, So we'll have to use a modified version of it. But basically you walk along and record within a few metres of where you are, the bumblebees or the butterflies. And you do that repeatedly. Um, So this year has been quite bad for butterflies. It's probably the very cold spring followed by the really wet May. Um, so yeah, butterfly numbers are down locally anyway. Um, but we wouldn't really know that if we didn't do this long-term monitoring that butterfly conservation pay for. Um, so yeah, that's how we're, we're going to um, monitor the biodiversity. But the other things that we're looking at are birds and bats, because they might be important predators of the blowflies, and obviously they're indicators of um, environmental change anyway because they're so species-rich. and and fairly mobile so they'll find the site fairly quickly uh, but we'll also monitor plant changes so we know that some of the farmers are going to be concerned about changes within the pasture from the shade from the trees um, so we're going to monitor that with not only um, biodiversity measurements but also productivity so using things like plate readers to to measure the swards and see how how, how much um, yielding of material there is there.
0: Andy you said the um The science was important to you, and you've obviously got quite an open mind about how you farm and the opportunities that are out there. How do your fellow farmers feel about this? I mean, are they supportive? Is is this something that you know others in in the wider community across Devon are saying, "Yes, great, I need to be part of this," or do they all think you're a bit bonkers?
1: I think they're startled, (laughs) Uh, and uh, yes, I think they probably. View me as slightly bonkers, but I think I think if they listen to the to, to the concepts behind it, they'd, un, they'd understand it. And I haven't really had time to to be convincing on it yet. But uh, I mean, the, the, what we're trying to achieve here is, an, is a deeper understanding of a, of a potentially more productive system. So we're not saying this is the answer. We're saying we think this might be helpful. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching it with a scientific rigor, which is 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 we have a an hypothesis and we're trying to see whether that hypothesis is or many hypotheses. We're trying to see if those are, are correct or not so it's to inform the science to to, to help uh, payment systems and everything else in the future so uh, yeah I think a strong
0: commercial motive as well as a strong environmental motive
1: yeah yeah and on top of that I have a very strong commercial motive which is I believe I could sell my meat for more so I know I'll make money out of this I know this will be a successful thing for me but not everybody is public. is is uh t- most people just produce stuff and then they sell it on a world market. Whereas I've never, never actually grown anything, which I didn't have a have a direct sale for. So it's it's a it's a different mindset. I think it's grow. I grew up selling cider to the public, and and it's just pushing that that concept further further forward. But. I, I believe that it's also good for commercial farmers I, I mean i went to agricultural college most farmers sons wanted to drive big tractors this doesn't encourage for driving of big tractors and i suspect for in five years time we'll actually be using drones and the drones will be sat, satellite controlled and we'll they'll know where the trees are and actually we we can that opens up a smaller landscape again but it's it small corners aren't such a concern for 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 that sort of technology so I look forward and think, well, eh, it's not a problem. Whereas most people are looking and just going, Christ, that looks a bit doppy.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a move. And we've had a number of farmers on the podcast over the last months who've, who've talked about changes. They've talked about, you know, not drilling and not ploughing. And they've talked about wild margins. And, you know, so it isn't just those who are committed to the rewilding agenda who want to try and restore some of that balance to their landscape and i think that you know you mentioned the stewardship scheme i think it's hugely important that there's support and funding for this isn't it because people need that if you know that they need that cushion to make the change um before it's commercially viable in its own right i mean what what are your kind of thoughts about where innovations might go in the future because this is obviously you know this we're looking at a 15 year time frame but there'll be another farming innovation or another suggestion coming around the corner. What what are you seeing in the future, Rob? And what, what, do, you, what do you think is the next big sort of innovative trial that we might be hearing about?
2: Um, well, I think that the, one of the key things is probably plant secondary metabolites. Um, so I think Andy was talking before about methane reduction from being grazed by animals grazing willow. And uh, there's been quite a lot of research globally, not so much in this country, because we don't really tend to feed animals t- trees or we mm-hmm. really browse. But, um, so, there's a, a, a seaweed which grows in Australia, and I wrote down its name so I could actually tell you what it was. And it's called Asparagopsis, which is a red seaweed. And it's had um, profound reductions on methane production in her beef steers by 80%. And they okay. only fed um, half a percent of the beef animal's total ration as this red seaweed. So, it's a very, very small amount, but it had this huge um, influence. And it's something that people haven't really looked at before, these plant secondary metabolites, um, in terms of what happens to the animals. And I'm sure that human nutrition is going to, um, well, it has already been catching up with it. You used to hear quite a lot about superfoods. Um, you know, And it was always the purple things are best. Well, why are the purple things best? Well, they have this profound influence on people's immune systems. And I'm sure that f- farm livestock are also going to be shown that these secondary metabolites can have a profound effects on their health and well-being. I think that's really going to be a new um, source of, of scientific research in the next few years, as people recognise these different compounds.
0: There we are. It's another trial for you to sound up to, Andy. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Seaweed-fed. Seaweed-fed venison. Fed that's what we want. It's the yeah, way yeah, forward.
2: We don't know whether or not some of the trees might have this effect. I mean, we, no research has been done on it because farmers, mm. and, you know, why would you do research on something that an animal was never going to eat? Well, now they might eat them.
1: Mm. So
2: let, let's have a look to see whether or not there is things in oak or in Hazel or in Willow that can I mean, have these profound impacts.
1: keen said, when 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 the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, Sarah? And the reality is, you know, everything around us is changing. All the all, all the things which we're worried about are changing and all the uh, knowledge about soil is dramatically improving and increasing and we just need to get the science and the, the understanding behind it. And then we need to get it out to people because we're a dissipated you know industry we're down the end of long lanes and miles from anybody so it's very difficult I mean Covid's been very interesting because farmers are zooming like they like you would not believe it and they're 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 sitting in on amazing discussions all over the place and and the the, the information exchange has ramped up like you would not believe so I've got great optimism from the fact for the idea that this new knowledge which is coming through is um is, is getting out to quite a few of them but uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, the things that Rob's talking about—it's it's all new stuff, and and we didn't realise we needed to know it. It wasn't—we it, it, now we know we need to know it. We now need to start to understand it, and then tell people all about it. So, it's. And, and the joy with it, the innovative farmers' schemes, is the fact that it's farmers who are who are starting the research, and as a consequence, it's relevant to farmers. And farmers believe farmers much more than they do politicians or journalists or anybody else. So uh, it's uh, so it's it's about that information exchange is is as important from the point of view of the future of, of of food production, biodiversity, and climate change and everything else. It's 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 a complex thing, but it needs to be needs to be understood.
0: Mm. absolutely and that's why this is such a a, a fascinating trial because it brought the science together it's underpinned by the science and the evidence and you're going to gather the data but you've brought your farming community with you with the you know the innovative farmers organization and you've also brought your community wider community in and i know that the trees were funded by the woodland trust weren't they so it it feels to me that you've got all of those interconnecting communities whether it's consumer or producer or observer scientist coming together in what is creating probably a very powerful and and fascinating mix. Um, We could talk about this for the rest of the day, or I certainly could, but we probably should draw it to a close. But I I wonder if I could ask you, is there something that you would like to leave with our listeners, either a piece of advice or information or perhaps a call to action um, that they might follow up on as a result of hearing the podcast today?
1: Stacks and stacks of things, but I think I think one of the big things that this demonstrates is that how important collaboration is because everybody's in their bunkers. They need to get out of their bunkers and look at what the uh, opportunities are with these things. I mean, but it's a fascinating um, structured trial. This because it's a twelve-year trial. You you don't want to go and have to rerun it in twelve years' time. So you want to get as many people into it as you can at the beginning because otherwise it's just a wasted opportunity and another wasted twelve years of time. So I think I mean my biggest takeaway message is is be is whatever you want to do get on with it because you know tomorrow's too late if, if you think you've got a good idea let's start investigating it now there we go
2: that's my chuck away line
0: yeah act now before it's too late how about yeah.
2: you Rob well just to say what Andy was saying there the best time to plant a tree was 25 years ago and the second time best time to plant trees today um, I think the key word that I would use is welfare and we know that the climate's going to change and there's going to be more stress on animals And if you can find a way that you can improve animal welfare in a nice, easy way, then why would you not do it? And planting trees and giving them that shade and shelter, I think is probably the easiest way of doing it. And you get all the extra benefits of having trees in the landscape as an extra. But we need farmers to actually do this, to to engage in tree planting.
0: Yeah. And there's a, there's a welfare benefit to all of us as well, isn't there? I yeah. mean, being, being around trees, being in a, in a mixed environment, being having a chance to, to see and hear the birds, actually yeah. making the countryside a little bit like it, it, it used to be, I guess, yeah. a bit more, a bit more pastoral, a bit more idyllic, but also productive and economically viable, because that's important too. Yeah. Um, So that balance between their welfare, our welfare, and actually being able to run our businesses effectively.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because we have to share what we've got. Obviously, we this do. is the only planet we have. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Let's and we think need... about
2: how we can make sure that we have uh, welfare not just for our animals or for us, but into future generations as well. You know, it's, it's not our planet; it's a, it's a shared planet, and we should make sure that we can actually hand it into our children and grandchildren in a way that they can keep living in a in a nice way.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure that chimes with every farmer in the land because you're always looking at the next generation and the one after to hand it on to. So thank you so much for being with us, um, Rob and Andy. Thank you for sharing and thank you for taking part in the trial because it sounds fascinating. And and if we can, we'll perhaps come back to you in a few years' time and find out how it's going. Um, yeah, I'd love to. And maybe even have a chance to come out and look at it for ourselves yeah. to <laughs> escape from our Zoom. Good as Zoom is, Andy. It'd be nice to escape now and again, wouldn't it?
1: It would. It yeah. would.
0: Huge thank you to you both.
1: Thank you very much, Amanda. Good to speak to you, Rob.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Amanda. Yeah. thanks.
0: And thanks to our listeners. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Um, why not follow us on Twitter or Instagram or subscribe to the podcast and then it will seamlessly appear every new episode into your inbox. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. Goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.